podcast. This is Rusty Reno in New York at the editor's desk, and I have with me today as a guest on our podcast, the editor's desk, Philip Munoz. He's the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center of Citizenship and Constitutional Government at the University of Notre Dame. And we're here to talk about his article, his recent piece, What is an Establishment of Religion? And Professor Munoz is eminently qualified to talk about this. He published, was it six, seven years ago, a really indispensable book of resources on religious liberty questions called Religious Liberty and the American Supreme Court. Am I right? Is it, Philip? That's that's right. It's a it's a case book, and it has excerpts of not every uh, American church state case, but uh, all the main ones. And it's used in uh, for undergraduates and, and for law students uh, in classrooms now. I found it very helpful because it gets all in one place uh, the material, and it's really fascinating to go back and look at the trajectory of these cases. And he's also the author of the forthcoming. Religious Liberty and the American Founding, a very programmatic uh, project uh, to try to uh, get the court on a sounder footing when it comes to religious liberty matters. Before we get going, though, I have to make a plug for the First Things Spring Fundraising Campaign. So all listeners to this podcast need to hit the pause button toggle over to the donate page on firstthings.com and make a donation to support our work. And for that, I will be so, so grateful. Okay, now that we've got our plug away, we can, we can jump into this. So, Philip, we have this current case, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Tell us about it. Yeah. <clears throat> Hold on, I need a second to fill out my uh, credit card information for my donation. <laughs> oh, well done, well done. <laughs> yeah, so this, um, well, let me start by saying it's uh, just a pleasure to be on the podcast. I'm an avid First Things reader and have uh, I listen to the podcast while working out, so uh, it's, it's great to be uh, a guest on the show. Um, yeah, the current case <clears throat> comes from uh, the state of Washington, actually my home state, and um it's a little bit complicated. The facts are, there's some disagreement among the parties on the relevant facts, but in its essence, uh, to simplify somewhat, high school football coach uh, prays after the game on the 50-yard line. Um, I think if my memory is correct, he started the practice alone, and then some players uh, start joining him. Players on the other team started joining him. This went on for several years, and then I got some publicity and the the local school district said, look, you, you just can't do this. We, the school district, don't want to be seen as endorsing religion, which uh, is a constitutional violation, at least under some Supreme Court precedents. Uh, so they told them to go pray in the press box or wait till all the kids leave and uh, uh, leave the stadium. And he made us think about it. And um, lawsuits were filed. And now we're writing about it in first things. <laughs> so the case then... Review for our listeners what the you know the judges have to make a decision about whether whether what it, this has to do with the establishment of religion. There's something. Explain to me why this would be, be even relevant as a constitutional matter. Like what? Like 
a guy, football coach. It just seems so remote from the First Amendment and its prohibition against the establishment of religion and its vindication of our right of free exercise. Yeah, let me just say your instincts uh, seem to me exactly right, right? Um, uh, how did we get from the the government making one church the official church of a state or the United States to um, lo a local school district official telling a high school football coach, look, you can't pray for 20 seconds after a game. It just, the disconnect is palpable. And I suppose that's why we're talking about this. Something has gone wrong. Uh, what that something is um, might take a long time to explain, but let, let me, there are three main precedents. Um, one of the problems with the court's establishment clause jurisprudence is that there are all sorts of precedents, not just one precedent. Uh, there's something called the Lemon Test. Uh, that's a name for a case in the 70s called Lemon v. Kurtzman. And according to the Lemon Test, <clears throat> government cannot, uh, um, must have a secular purpose when it acts. It cannot advance religion and it cannot entangle itself with religion. That's a court-made doctrine to enforce the First Amendment's prohibition on Congress making laws respecting an establishment of religion. Uh, Justice O'Connor in the 80s modified the Lemon Test. Um, she proposed that the court use instead what's called the Endorsement Test, and that's simply the idea that uh, government cannot endorse religion. Um, that precedent was criticized by Justice Kennedy, who proposed his own test. Um, uh, sometimes goes by the um, name the psychological coercion test. Uh, the key idea here is government cannot coerce religion, but Justice Kennedy had a broad notion of coercion, including psychological coercion. So in the context of uh, schools, which is the context of the current case, uh, public high schools, um, psychological coercion, according to Justice Kennedy, and a majority of the Supreme Court includes Students feeling in any in any way pressured to pray. Uh, in so any that, way. I, in I any way, that, yeah. That really is a test that you can never really, you can never succeed with that test. Well, I guess the coercion is in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. Uh, so let me, I mean, the actual facts of the case were the high school, it was actually a middle school graduation. And, you know, kids at the graduation, which wasn't even mandatory, were asked to stand Well. um, uh, a local member of the community said a benediction. And the mere act of this prayer being said in the student's presence at a voluntary graduation ceremony was deemed to be psychological coercion of students. You, as you put it, the this way of thinking winds up treating any religious expression as like a contagious virus. <laughs> yeah, you, which you can't expose uh, students to. I've thought that, uh, I mean... It all goes back, at least as my lawyer friends, and you've you've uh, and you've also, I think, um, said this as well. It all go, it all goes back to Everson, which is a 1947 case. Tell us about that case and 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 why it's so important. Yeah, so Ever Everson versus Board of Education. It's a 1947 case uh, from the state of New Jersey. Uh, the, the actual facts of the case involved. Uh, reimbursement of parents uh, for the transportation costs. So kids would, uh, parents would send their kids to the local schools on public buses. You know, this is before the yellow school bus. And uh, if you sent your kid to a Catholic school or any other school, you got reimbursed. But the issue was, could, could you reimburse the parents of these kids um, for their uh, city bus fare? Um, and in the important 
importance of uh, the, the relative importance for uh, our conversation is that's when the Supreme Court said the First Amendment erects a wall of separation between church and mm. So that phrase <clears throat> and that uh, idea, a wall of separation, has now sort of entered our constitutional lexicon. And that's what many people think the First Amendment means. Even though, of course, the phrase wall of separation nowhere appears uh, in the First Amendment. So then we, it seems to me that, I mean, I look back on the trajectory of our, well, not just on a religious establishment, but just more broadly on um, the court's solicitude, if you will, to sort of um, the individual's, um, I don't know, rights and integrity vis-a-vis -vis the dominant social consensus, that this seems to be a big tre trend in the post-war era. Um, and I, I've long thought that if if our social consensus, or at least if the, so the consensus of those who are likely to be appointed to the bench, is that religion is a bad thing, then we're going to get jurisprudence that tries to limit its public influence and significance. Just, a, just like I think our pornography uh, jurisprudence changed when you know, uh, at least elites began to think, well, it's not such a bad thing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, the Everson case, my uh, my friend uh, Don Drakeman, uh, who's associated with Notre Dame and Princeton University, wrote a terrific book on the Everson uh, uh, opinion. And um, what he found is that there's a lot of anti-Catholicism that animated the justices. Mm -hmm. uh, the justices at the time, uh, this is sort of the older Protestant establishment, uh, didn't want public money or state money going to Catholic schools. And that's what they were concerned about. And you could say that was a dominant elite culture opinion of the time. And this is before John F. Kennedy became president. You know, could Catholics really be a part of America? Um, even if Catholics are going to be part of America, we don't want government funding Catholic schools. And you could say the, the original wall of separation is tinged with anti-Catholicism. <clears throat> take, take Jody Bottom's book, um, on the development, the original Protestants who were anti-Catholic, now they're post-Protestants and they're anti-religious. Right. And you I see that development in the court's jurisprudence. Yeah, I mean, there's always, I mean, uh, the, the cases that are, and the issues before the court that are always culturally controversial are, they involve, you know, decisions that press, you know, on the margins or press on the limits of our, of our constitutional system. Um, and like I said, you know, if, if there's a, I mean, I think that's Paul Blanchard's book, mm -hmm. warning about the threat that Catholicism posed to American democracy. I think that was published in the late 1940s. That was a big bestseller. So if you think as a judge, you're a Supreme Court justice, that Catholicism poses a threat to the body politic, and this case comes before you, and you'd be very tempted to adjust uh, pretty significantly you know, the boundaries of our religious liberty jurisprudence, it seems to me, or First Amendment jurisprudence. Yeah, and the, and the way they do that is the justices issue these vague and broad um, standards, you know, a wall of separation. Well, what does that mean? Well, in truth, it means whatever the justices or later courts want to, want to say it means, but you can always use it as a, a hammer against religion or <clears throat> those forms of religion that you don't like. You, in your piece, you 
you um, uh, you digress. You point out that well, whatever the Constitution might have, whatever people had in mind when they when they voted for the First Amendment, it it was clear that you know in the actual practice in in the states, uh, it, it it it's not at all what we think it is now. And you give the example of uh, South Carolina. Which is yeah. a fascinating uh, example. I mean, that Massachusetts and Connecticut and other places had establishment, but here you have a state that actually erects a a certain kind of uh, a religious establishment after the fact, rather than simply continuing with one they had already. Is that am I correct in that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to push back a little bit on one of your factual statements. So what you say is what everyone says. So. Everyone says um, there are you know, six or seven states that had an establishment of religion at the time of the founding. Yeah, probably 10 years ago, I, I just sat down and said, okay, well, what were the six states? I just wanted to document this. So I went through and I read the state constitutions of, of the time. And much to my confusion, there was only one state that said we have an establishment of religion. That's the 70, 1778 um, South Carolina state constitution. So I was trying to figure out, well, how, why does everyone say six or seven states had establishments? It's because um, following the court's modern jurisprudence, the funding of religions, government funding of religion is considered to be an establishment. Uh, and arguably six or seven states funded religion in various forms. And therefore, we say now that six or seven states had an establishment of religion. Uh, it's so not, your point is, is that they never they they did not consider that establishment. It was. <laughs> very much disputed on what is and what is not an establishment. Mm. Um, some people said funding of religion, James Madison said funding of religion is an establishment, so he might agree that Massachusetts in 78 established religion. Uh, but other people would say no, and one of the easiest ways to determine what is an establishment is just to see what states actually said, we have an establishment. Right. By that definition, only one. And it seems that one state, if we want to understand what an establishment was in its most essential forms, we should turn to that state. That's not Virginia and that's not Massachusetts. That's actually South Carolina. And they established very minimal creedal standards for being able to incorporate uh, as a as a church. And then one of the benefits of that incorporation is that you that these churches then assume taxing power over their over their members. Yeah, that's that right? exactly right. So if you look at what the state of South Carolina did in 1778 when it established a religion, it extended certain privileges to established churches, and then it, ex it also extended certain regulations. So uh, to be incorporated, there are no general incorporation. This seems very technical, but it's, it's pretty important. Uh, there are no general incorporation statutes at the time. Yes, right. You, get, you had to have active legislature in order to incorporate to get, collect tolls for the bridge that you built. Exactly. So if if you if you want if your church wants to own property, have legal standing, be able to protect its rights to sue, it has to be incorporated. Only established churches could get incorporated. That's a huge legal privilege. When those churches were incorporated, uh, they had to meet certain requirements. They had to subscribe to certain articles of faith, which were prescribed in the state constitution. So yeah, I, I, really I looked at, mm -hmm. yeah, I looked at that, and that's fascinating, right? So basically, um, you could not be a Unitarian and uh, or a Socinian or whatever the 
uh, and get this incorporation. And this is in contrast to Massachusetts and the whole crisis in Massachusetts over um, state uh, uh, state funding of religion turned on the fact that there were no doctrinal standards, and and it was a it was a, a crisis when the people who paid taxes in the township got to vote on the next pastor, not the people who went to church, because you pay the taxes, you should have a say in who the and then they would they would vote for Unitarian ministers, but the church members wanted traditional Congregationalist Trinitarian. That's right. One, yeah. one other element of a, an establishment is when the state prescribes how ministers are to be selected. Right. So this is um, you couldn't be Catholic in either of these states uh, and uh, and have legal recognition, um, at least in terms of establishment provisions, because in South Carolina, in the Constitution, it said ministers must be selected by the people. Right. I, not appointed by bishops or other church authorities. And the same was true in Massachusetts. That's why some people said, well, Massachusetts had elements of an establishment because the state constitutions themselves prescribed how ministers were selected. Right. Yeah, I think uh, Mark DeWitt Howe's book on, I think it's called The Wilderness and the Garden, um, as he documents, uh, it was religious uh, leaders that uh, ultimately led the charge against these forms of establishment. And it turned on on these effectively the state of South Carolina was dictating an ecclesiology, a congregationalist ecclesiology. Um, and then whether you're a Presbyterian or a Episcopalian or what have you, this was not, this didn't, this didn't float. So <laughs> no, right. you, you could say, I mean, and, and um, I use slightly different language in my new book, but you could say establishments are state regulation of religious institutions as such, you know, this is how you must select your ministers. These are the tenets of faith you must prescribe. <clears throat> and then extending state, special state privileges to institutional churches. Right? We will buy you property or we will delegate our taxing authority to you, the, mm. the state's authority. What, back to, um, back to the, the Kennedy case here that's before the court. Um, you say that it could go, the, the court could find in favor of Kennedy's right to pray at the 50-yard line, but you think it could be done in two ways, one of which is a kind of narrow ruling that you think is dodging what the real issue, and the other of which is a, 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 actually to take the bull by the horns and, and, and deal with the problems and the mess that's been created over the last 50 years in, in this religious liberty area. So outline for the listeners what those two avenues could be. Yeah, yeah, and there's probably more than two, but... Um... One way the court could rule in favor of the coach is simply to say, look, he, he's a, for purposes of his prayer after, after the game, he's a, just a private citizen. He's not acting in mm. his official capacity. No, he's just taking a knee. So it's not, it's not state action. It's not uh, the school district speech. And therefore, there are really no constitutional concerns. Uh, they could even go a step further and say his actions are protected under the free speech clause. But the easiest course would just be to say, look, this is just, he's taking a moment to, uh, on his own time, not in interfering with his other school responsibilities. Uh, the actions are not ascribable to the, to the school officials, and therefore there's no establishment clause violation. And that's a way to sort of let the coach pray or let coaches pray and not make the case a big deal. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's... Um, that would be very much in the line of what the Chief Justice probably would want to do. Um, 
it means in two years or in two months, we, we're not really even thinking about the case so much. Um, an alternative, and this is the one I outline in the article, is the, the court, at least if there's five justices willing to do so, uh, they could say what many of the justices have been saying for a long time. Um, our entire establishment clause jurisprudence has gone awry, and we really should set it straight. Uh, and you could say, I guess that's what I'm encouraging the court to do. Um, now they have to come up with an alternative understanding of the establishment clause, and that's also. And you right. offer that, and I and I offer that. I mean, it's a kind of precy of the forthcoming book, I gather. Yeah, a little bit. It's a part of it. That's right. And um, you can't beat something with nothing. And oh, yeah. it, it takes a plan to beat a plan. Yeah, it takes right. it takes a it takes a test to beat a test. That's right. So <laughs> I, I think. Um, so I kind of knock Justice Scalia um, in the piece uh, friend, in a friendly way that Justice Scalia was very good at criticizing how the court got things wrong, but he never took the time to outline a sort of comprehensive doctrine of what an establishment clause really, what the establishment clause actually prohibits. And so I'm trying to fill in the blanks there. Well, okay. So give us what, what, like what would what do you want to see written into this majority opinion? Yeah, well, it's not really what I want to see. I, what I try to do is say, look, if you're really going to follow the founders' political philosophy, this is what uh, the type of jurisprudence you get. These are the types of tests you get. Um, first, you'd say the state can't delegate its authority to churches, mm -hmm. right? It, that's sort of a core principle of non-delegation, or really, it's called sub-delegation. Um, so to go back to the South Carolina case, you know, the state certainly cannot delegate its taxing authority. The state cannot delegate its taxing authority to churches. And um, in South Carolina, uh, not only could incorporated uh, churches uh, use the state's power of taxation, they could actually raise the pew assessments right, in a non-voluntary way, right? You agree to become in the church and you agree to a pew assessment. Well, once you're a member of the church, the church could raise your church taxes effectively even if you didn't consent to that, and they could use the power of the state. That's a real delegation of the state's course of authority. There's actually one modern case um, that's called Grendel's Den, and um, in some ways it's sensible, but it, it's an improper delegation. If you wanted a liquor license in Massachusetts, I think this was actually in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and you were within, I can't remember how many feet of a church, 500 feet or something like that, the church could effectively veto the liquor license. But the right. law said, if the church vetoes, then you you don't get your liquor license, effectively delegating the, the state's power of licensing to churches. So you couldn't do that either. And so no delegation, any other elements that you think are important? Yes. And then no, um, the state can't function like a church. So the, the state can't uh, write articles of faith. The state can't tell churches, how they are to select their ministers. Uh, this is, we might disagree here, uh, the state can't write prayers for uh, students. And I, if you push the principle, uh, and I know a lot of my friends won't like this, the state can't appoint uh, and pay for its own religious ministers. So right. Professional and military chaplains. I mean, that's a little controversial, but I actually think that's the consequence of the principle. So the basic idea here is that the church, the test is, is is the church acting like the state and the other contrary side of it is the state acting like a church 
And, yes, yes, and basically, yes. So if you want to say separation of church and state, that that would be a that would be a way of, of as opposed to this notion that I mean it's it's normal for the state to um, subsidize uh, you know pro-social behavior, and so if the Alcoholic Anonymous meetings are being held at the church, you know, and run by the church, and in fact we 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 do allow public funding of these sorts of activities. And the real, social services that are provided by churches that serve the public good are the state signs off. I mean, the court perfectly signs off on the idea that, you know, the Catholic Church gets a lot of money from various government agencies to pr- provide social services. Yeah. And the, and the state's interest is, you know, have you, um, does your AA program work? And if it works, then it's in the state's interest and competence to fund it. I I think I probably... Do disagree. I I think of uh, is it Engel? That's the school prayer case in New York in the early '60s. I think the state has an in, a general interest in piety as a virtue, even though I think the state I, I think our system of separation is uh, non-establishment is very very good. And I agree with you that the state should not be in the business of defining the articles of faith, so to speak, or the nature or the or the the the, the object of that piety. But the general virtue of piety is, a, I think, a, a public good. And yeah, the, the art generic, you know, and they, they got the rabbis and the priests and the pastors to get together to create this most anodyne ecumenical prayer that, um, that the, so was the state acting like a church? Well, no church would accept this anodyne. It all says, no, no, the general virtue of piety is not sufficient. You have to have piety properly directed. Yeah, no, this is... Yeah, I'm being a little, a little bit uh, uh, Jesuitical here. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let me put it this way. George Washington would probably agree with you and not me. So yeah. um, the position I take, which again, is not necessarily my personal position, but the, the position that I think comes out of the founder's political philosophy. Um, one, these marginal cases are tough and you know one can make good arguments on both sides. Um, what I would say to this is, um, the reason why we we can't allow the regents or school district board officials to, to write prayers that the students say, even in a voluntary way, is that we, the people, didn't give that power to the government. We, when, we, when we say religious exercises are an inalienable natural right, what that means is that we, we retain jurisdiction over our religious exercises. So even if the prayers that school officials or the governor would write, even if they're reasonable and you know, most people would accept them. Um, they don't have authority to do it. So that's my point. But you would say that, uh, I, okay, I like this line of thinking. So the way around that, or the way to respect, not around too pejorative, the way to respect that, 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 that kind of very clear statement of, of, of um, a very clear conceptual statement is, the school board could not craft a prayer, but a school could invite local ministers to start the school day with a prayer, just as long as it's neutral with respect to the available, right? Because then the school is not writing the prayer. No, it's the pastor or the priest or the rabbi who is functioning. And all the government is doing is saying that, you know, um, it's a good thing for young people to be exposed to this sort of thing, although we don't have any say in what this sort of thing is. 
I, I, uh, <laughs> you're moving in the right direction. Let me, if, if at a high school graduation, you know, this, this graduation uh, time. So if at a high school graduation, um, the principal invited a member of the community in to say a few words at the beginning of the ceremony to solemnize the occasion and just left it at that. And if that member of the community, you know, the editor of first things perhaps, yeah. uh, used uh, his or her time to say a prayer, I think that would be okay. Um, to orchestrate a prayer might, at least in my view, um, cause some constitutional problems. But, you know, we're really drawing fine lines here. It's not... Because I think you could get legislative... I think you could get, uh, you know, uh, you could preserve the chaplain to Congress and all these things. And, but I, I do like this notion that there's something suspect about uh, prayers that are confected by state ed- agencies. Uh, yeah, that is really a, uh, that's a ecclesiastical function assumed by the state. Um, just as it would be suspect if, you know, the police powers of government were, were, you know, as, as, as you said, that's basically what was happening in Cambridge, Massachusetts with liquor license. That's a police power matter, you know, regulating the morals of the people. Um, you know, is a government function and not an ecclesiastical function. Yeah, I, I, that's right. And so I, I'm trying to present the founders' approach to mm-hmm. separation of church and state or religious liberty more generally, and it's it's jurisdictional. It it's these are things the state can legitimately do, but the, there are some things that the state can't legitimately do, and it's just a different way of thinking about. Um, constitutionalism and constitutional government. It's the founder's way of thinking, but we, um, you know, the modern Supreme Court thinks more managerially. It wants to manage, you know, you can say, you can pray in this way and not in this way, or you, you know, you, you, you can um, uh, include religion as long as you don't endorse religion. That's not, that's not a legal way of thinking, at least not in the natural rights tradition that our, our founders bequeathed to us. As I understand it, you know, part of the problem is is that our jurisprudence in this matter thinks in terms of territory, whereas you want us to think in terms of function. Yeah, or power. I mean, yeah. pardon? Or power, you know, common yeah. powers, yeah. Yeah, or jurisdiction, let's call yeah. it that. Because, you know, it's all about the fact that, you know, if he was on the football, like, where is he? He's on the football field, and the football field's owned by the, it is a kind of territorial, if this is happening in the wrong place by the wrong person, we suddenly it's a problem. Whereas you're thinking, no, no, you know, what, what's our jurisdiction is being exercised? What sort of power is being exercised? Yeah, it's very helpful. It's even worse than territorial. I think it's, it's, um, O'Connor's jurisprudence in particular, the endorsement test, it's, it's really a matter of perceptions and feelings. Mm. Might the students think religion is being endorsed? Well, how do you measure that? It's so impressionistic. Right. Right. And you right. can't you you just can't have consistent jurisprudence. This is why the school district officials say, look, if we can't endorse religion, the, the clearest and easiest way to make sure we don't endorse religion is just not to allow religious practices to happen. Yes. If there's no religion. Then we're not endorsing it. We yes. won't violate the First Amendment. That's one of the reasons why the, the, the course jurisprudence is so bad and actually does lead to this hostility. Not because these school district officials are necessarily hostile to religion. The, the rules they have to enforce, rules established by the Supreme Court, incentivize them 
to be hostile to religion. That's why the court, I think, should revisit its jurisprudence. Well, let's hope it does. Thanks, thanks for your time and, and thanks for this great piece. And I look forward to, to, to the book, um, which is, again, Religious Liberty and the American Founding. And when is that coming out? Uh, sometime this summer, I think later in the summer. All right. Very good. All right. Um, thanks again. Talk thanks. to you soon. <laughs>